0: Hi, in today's Life After Leadership podcast, I'm talking to Cliff Spolander. Cliff is a business growth and exit specialist and the CEO of Business by Design, the UK's leading exit planning advisory company. He is also the author of two books, The Smarter Exit and The Cashflow Code. Cliff's on a mission to stop hardworking SME business owners failing to exit their business successfully due to insufficient clarity and a lack of focused business, personal and financial plans. He is frustrated to see so many business owners working extremely hard, but when they come to exit, failing to realize a return on investment for all the years of effort. Furthermore, life is unpredictable, so Cliff wants to see every owner being more prepared for unexpected life events, such as illness, a change in personal circumstances, or maybe even death. Cliff is passionate about working with business owners to create a clear, focused and strategic exit plan for their business. Business exit is a complex subject and to make this easier to digest Cliff developed a downloadable entitled 12 things to consider before selling your business. We are going to discuss five out of the 12 points today. So Cliff, what are the biggest misconceptions you find entrepreneurs make when looking to exit their business.
1: The most common and the biggest mistakes that I come across most often deal around not really considering how they're going to exit the business because are they going to sell? Are they going to self-liquidate or go through plan liquidation? Or are they going to potentially sell off the client base and close the company down? So I don't think owners sit down and really consciously think about the type of exits that they are looking to achieve. The other big problem that I come across is the lack of time that owners give themselves to prepare for exit. A lot of people tend to think that Selling a business is very similar to selling a house. We can give the house a, a lick of paint, a bit of a clean, sort the garden out, stick it on the market and off you go. And it's not like that for a business. There's a lot more complex involved. There's there's a lot more things, moving parts to consider. And I typically say that to, to prepare and to sell a business, if that's the option for the owner, is give yourself at least three to five years to do that. Uh, and the reason why I say that's the time period approximately is because the owner still has to work within the business. And so they still got to do stuff, still got to do the, do the work. And the the three to five years gives the owner the, the scope and the time to prepare the business for sale, to get the right documentation in place uh, and get the, the company ready for that sales process, especially for the due diligence phase. So the other reason why I say is their time period is that buyers will look at the historical um, performance of the business and they'll base the valuation on that historical performance. So to get things aligned correctly and to achieve the correct valuation, that time affords the owner to do that. And the kind of third biggest kind of misconception around exit planning is that owners focus only on the business and they forget about their personal plan and Mm -hmm. their financial plan. And where the problems come in is when an owner forgets about the personal plan in the form of between now and when they exit the business, whether it's selling or liquidating or closing down, what happens if I have a heart attack? What happens if I get ill? What happens if there's a a disagreement among the shareholders or uh, directors? Or what happens if I, you know, I go through a rough patch with the company and I want out immediately. What happens then? The other part is what happens once I exit the business? And many owners don't really think about life post-exit, post-business. And they end up meandering around uh, aimlessly uh, because they're so used to working all 50, 60, 70 hours in the company. And Now, all of a sudden, they've got all this time in the world and they don't know what to do it themselves. And then on the financial side of things, many people understand and have an idea of when they want to retire, it could be 60, 65, 70, whatever the case may be. But when I ask an owner, how much money do they need to retire? They can't tell me. And so we go through a process where we work out what the number is, which is the amount of money that they need to retire on to live a lifestyle they want. And there we, we get a, a number and we typically work it out as when they're going to retire, we're going to assume they're going to live to 100. And if they want a lifestyle of 60 grand a year, we work it out. And it could be 4 million pounds, could be 3 million pounds, but at least they've got an idea of how much money they're going to need. And so once we know what their personal plan is, the financial plan and the business plan, we can then formulate a a working plan to get them to that.
0: So that's definitely the best place to start, isn't it? Because I think many business owners think they need a lot more money than they actually do.
1: Yes, people always overvalue their businesses because they think they need more than what they really do. And by working out, enough created a very simple calculator that works out a rough number of what you're gonna to need to retire on, you realize that actually you don't need that much. If you wanna live a decent lifestyle and not be extravagant, you may need three or so million pounds to retire at age 60, for instance, to live a decent lifestyle, But knowing that number is key. You may need less, you may need more, depending on what you want to do. But knowing that number is critical.
0: So really, any business owner should be coming to someone like you, Cliff, to have that valuation, whether they're thinking about selling their business in the next three to five years, because actually that then pinpoints where they need to get to. And when the time is right, it may indicate that actually, yes, I'm at a position where It's now time to start that process.
1: Exactly. And I always say it's it's always worth preparing your business for exit as soon as possible and be in an exit ready position because none of us knows what's there. Something could happen to us personally where we can't work in the business or don't want to work in the business. And so by having an exit ready business, it's like having an injection seat on a plane. If something does go wrong, you can inject very quickly. And what I'm finding with many SME owners is that they don't have an injection seat, so they crash with a plane. So I want to help them create an exit strategy so that they have an injection seat should they need it.
0: On your website, you have a scorecard that can help yes. businesses understand if they are ready to exit. So that's a great idea for somebody to go on onto your website after listening to this podcast today. And, and take that. Could you just give us the address for that, Cliff?
1: Yeah, it's www.businessbydesign.co.uk. There's another website. If you go to salabilitytest.com, that allows you to see how sellable your company is. And that, that too gives you a score with a 29-page report on how you can improve the salability of your business.
0: So what can support an entrepreneur's journey to exit if we review your download one of the points you make is to get a sensible valuation how would one go about
1: valuation is for me the biggest issue in how to how people sell a business because it's very emotive and it's very subjective and Without knowing what your number is and without knowing the true value of your business, it's very difficult to negotiate properly with, with a buyer. And so what we tend to do is we've created seven methods of valuing a company. And I always highly recommend that out of the seven methods, use at least three to value your business. The reason why I say three is that it gives you a very good, holistic, balanced view of your business gives you a good range. On top of that, we show you the calculations. And that I think is critical because very often when I'm speaking with sellers, they say, I think my business is worth 500,000 pounds. And when I ask them to show me how they got to that number, they can't. And so by showing uh, a buyer, by showing uh, a commercial lender, a bank, how you got to that valuation, is critical you can't just simply suck your thumb and go I think it's worth half a million but I'm not sure how I got there we need to show mathematically how you get there and so having seven different methods and at least using three of those methods gives you a good holistic range for what your company's worth but also you can prove to anyone how you got to those numbers
0: some business owners will start to get offers from buyers how should they approach that? I am I was talking to a business owner. He sold his business a number of years ago and he started to get offers. And when he spoke uh, to an advisor, they said to him, would you be happy with that? And he said, no, actually I want more. And, and went on a journey with this company and actually achieved 70% more. So... From my perspective, I would say you shouldn't value your business against some, what something it, somebody is offering you.
1: It depends on, on several factors. <clears throat> I think if you know what your company's worth, what the value is using, say, three different methods, mm. you have a good idea of what's been offered is a fair price mm. or a fair amount. Now, at the same time, if we're looking at a trade buyout where effectively they're buying your contact list, And if your net profit happens to be 50,000 pounds, but because that's a trade sale, they're going to absorb a lot of the overheads anyway from you, which means that your company will be a lot more profitable to them. So that will attract a higher valuation. On top of that, if the owner is offered this for argument's sake, they've offered half a million pounds of the business and the owner needs 400,000 pounds in order to hit their number and retire. Then it's a decision that the owner has to make is half a million pounds enough. And will that allow me to retire knowing that I need 400,000 pounds in my pot to to bridge my wealth gap, then they can, they can crack on. But obviously it's always worth looking for more. If somebody does offer an amount, it's typically lower than what they're prepared to pay anyway. So it's always worth negotiating, but the power comes in into knowing what your company is really worth and how you can prove that, but also knowing what your number is. So you can say, right, half a million isn't enough. I do need £700,000 or a million, in which case you can reject the offer. If you need less than what's been you in the position to say, yes, that's great. I'll accept that offer and move on with your life. Or if you want to negotiate further. So it's about knowledge, it's about knowing where your company's at and where you act financially as well.
0: Many business owners get fixated on turnover. What's the saying? Turnover is vanity, profit is sanity. One of your downloads points is that you should focus on profit and cash flow. What is the benefit of the
1: saying of turnover is vanity, profit sanity? I say cash flow is reality. Let me ask you a question. If you which one would you prefer to have Uh, a business turning over a million pounds, netting 20,000 pounds or a business turning over 250,000 pounds, but netting 60,000 pounds.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Much easier. You can be a busy fool and running around for nothing. or well, you can be very smart, but turnover is just a number. It, it may look good having seven figures, but you may be running around like a crazy fool. So what we look at is profit, but also we look at cash flow because effectively, if you, I don't you know, a company could make a hundred thousand pound net profit, but they in overdraft, so Again, you've got to balance and weigh it up. And we look at both profit and cash flow. And ideally, they should be the same approximately, but a very profitable business can still go bankrupt. Mm. So we look at cash flow, and cash flow is the lifeblood of the business. And so, and the one of the valuation methods I've used and created is a cash flow valuation method where we value your business based upon the cash flow it generates. So it's very much if if you were to go and apply for a mortgage. The, the the mortgage or the bank would look at how much you earn how much you want and it will give you a mortgage based upon your the, the expenditure that you have the amount money you own and uh, you earn and so the cash flow valuation method does pretty much the same thing it's more of a sanity check to see how much how valuable your company is based upon the the cash flow the company generates and so it's a bit of a bit of a sanity check to make sure that the company can actually afford to pay for itself and so i think let's forget about turnover focus on profit but actually more than that focus on cash flow and making sure that your company is very liquid
0: explain more about this point only the recent past counts
1: this really applies for for smes if you go back say five ten years for an sme things happen so quickly so often within an sme business that What happened five, 10 years ago has no relevance on today. So a buyer typically will look at the last two to three years just to see exactly what's going on, look at the trends. And then based upon those trends, we'll move things forward two or three years to see what potentially the company will look like if things remain the same within the company. So by looking back at the recent past, especially the last 12 months, for instance, you can gauge how the companies were forming. And you know, obviously COVID is a very good example where you know, things have gone completely awry for some companies. Turnover could have been decimated. Other companies, their turnover and profit has quadrupled depending on what sector you're in. And so we need to take in, into consideration the various aspects and what's going on within the country and in the world. And um, we can only do that for an SME in, in the short term, anything longer than three years. Uh, you can take into consideration, but It sometimes has very little bearing on what's happening currently, but it can be an indicator. So I would say, look at the recent past, look at your recent trends and whatever trends are in going in the wrong direction, understand why and see if you can fix those trends.
0: So presumably that is something that you would do with your customers.
1: Yes, definitely. We look at the trends and seeing what's going on, why it's trending that way. What can we do to improve those trends, enhance those trends and maybe even reverse those trends? But at least by knowing what those trends are doing and by had to ask, you know, why is your gross margin going down? There's an answer for it and a solution for it. So knowledge is power. And how often would you look at that? On the trend basis on how the company is going. Ideally monthly, at least quarterly, I would say, just to understand what's happening within the company. And then if anything is going in the wrong direction, you can fix it very quickly. If you look at the company over for the last 12 months, those trends could have been set in very quickly and it will take a long time for you to correct those trends. So by understanding what's going on financially within your company on a monthly or quarterly basis, If things are going in the wrong direction, you can fix them very quickly. And it's all about being proactive rather than reactive.
0: So do you sit down with your customers or have online meetings with them to go through the figures?
1: Yes, we do that. We've got enhanced financial reporting, which shows you how the company is uh, performing. Uh, on a customer basis, supplier basis, the product or service basis, look at the turnover trends, the, the net margin trends, gross margin trends, bank balance trends, cash flow trends. To see, you know, making sure that all the KPIs within the business are performing and optimizing in a particular way and being as efficient as possible.
0: Great. When another party buys your business, it's not just the brand they acquire there is the relationships with employees, customers, and suppliers to consider too. How do you suggest that business owners deal with these relationships before and during the exit process?
1: Yeah, that's a very complex question. (laughs) And let's probably look at the the first two easy ones, suppliers and, and customers. Part of the due diligence phase that we undertake is to see what relationship the current owner, the seller has with suppliers and with customers. Because you want to know that in some cases, the supplier offers the the seller enhanced rates or mates rates because they know the person. Now we don't know as a buyer whether those rates will continue once the seller leaves. So we need to establish that. And if a, a seller can start to almost divorce themselves from those relationships, We know that from a buying buying perspective, that those rates um, or those terms will still continue. In much the same way, with regards to customers, I think for a, a seller, they need to start removing themselves from those relationships. Because what you don't want to do is a customer phone up and say, I want to speak to John, who's the owner, and not Sarah, who is the account manager. Because if John's not there... Uh, what's gonna happen? Will the customer leave? What's gonna happen? So that's a risk for a potential buyer. So I would say to any seller, if you are in a, if you are deeply involved in a lot of those client relationships, supplier relationships, start to divorce yourself from them and put other people in charge. It could be a management team, could be an account manager, so that as a buyer, we know that those relationships will still continue once the owner or the seller leaves. And then on the more probably the more complex part, which is employees, no one likes change. And in fact, one of my clients this week, we've had to make some radical changes to the management team and the entire company is in a big flap due to these changes. And so we need to ensure that uh, the buyer and the seller are communicating really efficiently and effectively with each other and that they both go to the employees together, explain what's going on, explain what's happening. In some situations, the buyer may be making a few redundancies and changes to the company. If that is the case, I would always recommend to do them very quickly and to get the company moving forward as quickly as possible and to let the dust settle as quickly as possible. But as far as possible, both the the seller and the buyer to be communicating together as one to the members of staff, either easing concerns or making changes as quickly as possible. But communication I would say is the key here is to keep things open and honest and to inform employees at the right time. And again, that's up for discussion, up for debate when to inform employees of the change. Some people do it after they signed the SPA. Some people do it just before courses for courses but communication is. So
0: when you come to sell the business, because obviously the sale can take a long time, what's that document called again? An SPA. So does the sale happen after that? So I'm just wondering if a business takes 14 months to sell, that it's really important that you get your employees on board?
1: It is. Again, it it depends on the the owner themselves for some owners want this to be completely quiet until the spa the sale and purchase agreement has been signed since that's signed the deal has gone through and then they will inform employees other owners will inform the employees just before It it depends on the situation really but for the majority of cases the employees tend to find out after they signed the spa and the deal's done and when that happens they need to go together as one voice and have a plan in place of when to inform the the employees. But that again is dependent upon the buyer and the seller as to when they feel is appropriate. And every uh, sale will be different. Every company will be different. And so when that happens, it's down to both parties understanding the environment and when the best and opportune time is to to inform the people.
0: The other thing I picked up was around contracts you need watertight contracts in place
1: definitely that's one of the things we look at from a commercial and legal perspective we make sure that there are contracts in place and what kind of contracts they are it's always worth having well-written contracts between suppliers and 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 customers and i would say it needs to be reviewed on an annual basis and any changes to the law or to the circumstances that those are then reflected in those contracts Mm. And those contracts are updated on a regular basis. And that also includes employee contracts. Yes. And very often when we do look at companies, we have seven different contract types for employees or their own different unique points to them. And I would say it's rather easier just to have one contract for everyone that everyone will, will be treated the same. And so it's, it's about looking back and making sure that those terms, conditions, contracts, employment contracts are all. Uh, set up correctly and are up to date and that they will continue as per the agreement and and
0: so is is there you know when should you be doing this should you be doing contracts every year every two years
1: i would say because
0: legislation changes all the time doesn't it
1: yeah, so that's where you get professionals in, people who understand how to write terms and conditions for customers, how to write contracts or to accept contracts from suppliers, and then HR consultants to have employment contracts, I would say, get them set up now, as soon as possible, and then review them every 12 months. So that should things change, you can reflect those changes in those contracts. So when I or a buyer would come in and have a look, we can see exactly that yeah, everything's up to date, everything's correct as it should be. Otherwise, we're gonna go back and renegotiate and that's gonna affect valuation because there's gonna be an increased risk that a supplier or a customer may not agree to those new terms. So it's in the seller's interest to make sure those terms are always up to date and agreed for, for all the parties.
0: Finally, we can not let you go without touching on the marketing side. Uh, Point 10 in your download is put your best foot forward, the shop front. What are the common pitfalls you see when entrepreneurs come to sell their business?
1: That's my favorite one. I think when when I look at a business at at first glance or when I hear a company's for sale, before I even speak with the owner, I do some research. I look at the website. I look at their social media profiles i look at the owner on linkedin i look at their reviews on google or wherever the review sites are i want to get a feel for the business and for what they stand for and what people think about them and what message they're portraying and very often in most cases and the company that i looked at that i bought back in 2014 from the outside looked great reviews were good uh website was quite good they they came across as big company with a good team. They looked really professional. So from, from that point of view, the attractiveness was there. They were looking good. We then go into the business sustainability, And that is what a company looks like from the inside. And that's what happens when a buyer starts to scratch the surface, starts to undertake the due diligence work. And in this particular company, I found that there were no HR contracts no health and safety documentations, no contracts with suppliers, no contracts with clients, no operating procedures. The equipment was old and worth nothing. The team that they were portraying they had were, was actually two or three guys and read really and stack up. What I saw from the outside wasn't what was on the inside. Uh, and so in my initial thoughts of the attractiveness, I had an idea of what the company um, should be worth, and then I unpicked um, the salability of the business, the inside of the business, and and it went down by ten times. And we were in negotiations for a, a couple of weeks, where the owner was definitely, you know, set on having a particular number, which which was out the question. So I told him what was I thought was feasible, and that considered the risk that I was taking, and I put forward a proposal, which. Which was rejected outright. However, four months later, and I remember to this day, at about half past ten, Sunday night, I get an email from this owner saying, I've reviewed everything, I want out, I'll accept the offer. Can we go ahead? And within two, three weeks, we signed signed the SPA and I owned the company. But the deal was structured so that the risk was off me. And um I you know there was still risk involved, but it was de risks as much as possible from my my perspective, and so we need to ensure that the business attractiveness, what the company looks like from the outside, the message that it's being portrayed outside, is the same as what's actually really going on in within the company. And if there's a disparity between the two, that's going to affect the valuation. And so I always encourage what you're portrayed from the outside that people are seeing happens on the inside. And so that is like getting all your HR contracts in place, Mm -hmm. making sure there's health and safety, make sure there's policies, there's systems, there's procedures in place. That all goes a long way to relieve a buyer's concern with what's going to go on within the business and their ability to be able to replicate the results that the current owner is experiencing or perhaps even better those results. But if those aren't in place, there's a big question mark whether they are able to actually replicate what the owner has done.
0: So the message I'm getting is that not being prepared is going to cost you.
1: Big definitely, time. Definitely. So I think. All,
0: all of that blood, sweat and tears that you put into your business, you need to sell at the right time because there are going to be times where if it's not going right and you get to the stage where you just want to get out. I feel that stage is not the stage that you want to sell your business, is it? But no. Being, being prepared means that you're going to have the most valuable business that you can.
1: Yeah, it, it's all interlinked with work-life balance. Many smaller SMEs, it's very owner dependent. So the owner is the is, does everything in the business. And you find that owners struggle to go on holiday without always being interrupted via phone or email and sorting out problems. And so by having an exit-ready business and being able to get key people around them, be it external or internal, will allow them to go on holiday without being interrupted, will de-risk the business, it'll make it more efficient, and you can prove that you can actually get the result or a buyer can get the results that you are experiencing once you leave. And that's the key principle. But it's all about being holistic is by looking at your your business plan your financial plan and your personal plan and making sure that those three are there stable creating that holistic platform that balance which then is which then translates into their business and creates a happier work-life balance
0: and I think you shouldn't be afraid to ask for help in areas where you are weak weaker because most business owners will be an expert in either the product or service they deliver the finances and the structure and the management of the business may not be where their true strengths lie. So bringing in people like you to help and support is going to be the most value solution for their business.
1: Totally. I, I, you know, for me personally, I pride myself on not knowing everything, uh, because if you do that, there's less responsibility on you. So I surround myself with a team of experts who I can call upon on any particular situation so i know and i understand the process but i'm not an hr expert so i've got very good uh, hr teams around me who i can call upon and so it makes life so much easier where you allow the experts to do what they're good at doing and you focus on what you're good at doing and that just takes the stress off and it's been done properly is done correctly and there's no comeback and that the whole world is changing at such a rapid pace You're going to need those people who are on top of what they're doing to to get the job done. And for you to stay on top of everything, it's impossible. So do what you're good at doing and farm out the rest that you aren't good at doing. And it just makes life so much easier.
0: So if this has resonated with people today, Cliff, how do they start working with you?
1: You can, we can go to my website, www.businessbydesign.co.uk book a discovery call. My book will be out by the end of May, which explains the process in a lot more detail. So feel free to go onto the website and I'll send you a free copy, a hard copy, so it won't be a PDF. Uh, And so just get in touch. I'm more than happy to have a chat, have a discovery call and see how we could work together and how we could best support you.
0: Brilliant. Thanks for your insight today, Cliff. Thanks for having me. If you would like a copy of Cliff's download, please do get in touch with Cliff at www.businessbydesign.co.uk. He also has a free scorecard, which will give you an indication of how ready your business is for exit. This is also available on the Business by Design website. Cliff's book, The Smarter Exit, can be purchased on Amazon, and he also offers a free download from his website.